Hello, I'm David Oakes, and this is a very special episode of Trees A Crowd, which I recorded on location in the Maldives. I went to stay at the Six Senses Eco Resort a little earlier this year in Lamu Atoll to spend some time diving with the marine biologists stationed there who work specifically for the Manta Trust. With that in mind, it might make a bit more sense to listen to last fortnight's episode with their CEO, Guy Stevens. Anyway, it transpired very quickly that this resort played host to more scientists than you could shake a stickle back at. So what you're about to hear is a collection of interviews I recorded over my time in the Maldives. Expect turtles, coral, sharks, seagrass, more, and if you're lucky, a manta ray. So this is Trees A Crowd, and these are members of what I would come to know as the Maldives Underwater Initiative. In the depth of the forest, an old oak the pride of the greenwood there. O'er his branches, the ivy her mantle threw when the forest boughs were bare. Oh, the oak and the ivy, oh, the oak and the ivy, oh. Hello, uh, yes. Hello, Lizard. How was that? <laughs> It's a common house lizard. Did you just make that up? No, no, no. It's literally called the common lizard, <laughs> which is kind of a boring name. But the smaller brown color ones like this are the females. Uh-huh. And then the big colorful ones that you've seen, maybe red, yellow, oh, I've seen the red ones around. are the males. And they'll like lay in the middle of the path and do push-ups in mm-hmm. the sun to impress the females. And wait until the last possible moment to run out of the way of your bicycle. So some you'll see them jumping through the spokes of the bike. I've almost run over a few of them. Yeah, they're very bold. So they're the regular inhabitants of the Six Senses Resort. Yeah, there's. you have talked to all of the marine biologists who have plenty of megafauna in the sea. There are very few land animals just because there isn't so much for them to eat. So it's a pretty harsh environment to live on an island in the middle of the ocean. Indeed. Um, so yeah, lizards, crabs... Lots of fruit bats, which have you seen? I've seen the fruit. I'm a, I'm a bit in love with the fruit yeah, bats. Yeah, they're There's that cool. huge lime tree down by the uh, the swimming pool. Looks like a lime. Not it's a lime called tree? a corkwood tree. Oh. I can't think of a good pun off the top of my head for That's the tree right. pun. But I'll show you, you when we pass it. You could put a cork in it. <laughs> Sorry. It looks like a kind of a lemon, but when it ripens... Um, the bats eat this really thin layer of yellow fruit around the outside, and if you've been to the spa, it leaves this little, looks kind of like a small coconut. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah, and no, I've seen those around. That they use for decor around yeah, yeah, the resort. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then when that falls to the ground, it will sprout a new one of that tree, so it's very renewable. Well, that, that's a lovely introduction to, to you. There's a bit of wildlife. So who are you? So my name is Megan O'Byrne. I'm the sustainability manager at Six Senses Lamu. And my job at the resort is a mixed bag. It is based, the goal is to make the resort more environmentally friendly, mm-hmm. less wasteful, more efficient. Um, Six Senses as a company is built on the philosophies of wellness and sustainability. So taking care of yourself and your health, but also of the environment, giving back to the community. Those are kind of the core values of the resort. And so every Six Senses in the world um, will look different based on where it is, but we'll still 
um, have a sustainability fund where they fund local development projects, um, do lots of education programs. If they're near the sea, they'll have a marine biologist, which we have 10. Mm -hmm. So the biggest of any resort in the Maldives. So we can really do a lot more than, you know, just be a tour guide and a snorkeling guide, but also do meaningful research. Um, we're trying to put in a marine protected area. We do a There's big... the seagrass campaign on the moment. The seagrass campaign to really spread this to other resorts. So we really don't want to be the only one. We want to... Um, encourage other resorts to follow suit and really share the knowledge that we have. Um, and our general manager, Miss Martine Venuel, is really driven in that regard. So a lot of resorts don't have the capacity to hire 10 marine biologists. And so we really want to use our expertise and our capacity to make the Maldives and, and the world well, better. <laughs> I mean, you're interesting in yourself being that you technically work in hospitality, but your background at university was in... Environmental science, yeah. Go. So I studied global studies and climate change and um, environmental issues. So I never really thought that I would work in a hotel. It didn't seem like the kind of saving the world activism that I wanted to be doing. But um, but yeah, Six Senses is a really great company to mm -hmm. work for because there are plenty of eco resorts in the world. But Six Senses is really trying to be the big brand sure. that shows you can still have this big global company, you know, offer this luxury service without compromising those values of environmentally friendliness and all of that. So, yeah, so far it's it's a it's, it's a different well. job every day. It's it's really <laughs> fun. Um, I mean, we're, we're currently standing in an organic garden. And we are in the garden. So every six senses will have some sort of garden or farm. Um, this is the chili table. So if you've tried any Maldivian food, you'll know that the Maldivian chili is very spicy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so we have about 20 different types of chilies. We have... Basil, mint, spinach, lemongrass, sugarcane, all different types of herbs. This is a herb garden, so we grow 100% of the herbs that we need. Fruits and vegetables we do get from local islands sure. and then, of course, from, from importing Could, as well. I mean, I, I mean, I know because it's a luxury resort, it provides a whole host of different kinds of food, but is there a world where it could become a self-sustainable island resort? You'd get the fish in, from the sea. In the Maldives, the it would be a little difficult. You would have to compromise your alcohol, your wine, <laughs> your beef, <laughs> your dairy products. I, mean, so. I, I haven't seen a four-legged mammal um, yeah. for the last 10 days. I've seen underwater mammals. I've seen flying mammals. And I've seen the annoying biped guzzling yeah. alcohol-consuming <laughs> kind. But it, that's it. If we ate only local food, it would be pretty much tuna, coconut, and chili in... A bunch of different forms for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, if if you if you wanted that, you could definitely find that in the Maldives. But because of the development of this country in luxury resorts, it relies a lot on imports, um, which is where sustainability and running a business mm -hmm. definitely come into a balance. And that is a lot of what my job is: is compromise. Well, it's as you said a moment ago. The two main income sources in the Maldives are mm -hmm. tourism and fishing. One of which is an internal thing with the fishing and the other one is tourists coming from the outside so I guess the the microcosm and the macrocosm the resort versus the Maldives in general sort of stand side by side exactly and they rely on each other mm -hmm. so every you know every resort relies on fishermen bringing fish but also the tourism industry I think is 85% of GDP so it's just oh, a wow. huge part of the Maldives economy and then both of those things of course rely on the natural environment so really coral reefs mangroves seagrass all of the ocean health is critical to both of those things and so i think when people think about development and, and economic development you don't really think about environmental mm -hmm. protection as that first thing but for maldives it's 
critical. That's that's kind of the cornerstone. And so you mentioned it briefly earlier, the Maldive Underwater Initiative, the 10 marine mm-hmm. biologists who are on site, that was an initiative set up by Six Senses, and Martine in particular? Or Yeah, so we originally had one marine biologist, one intern back in 2014, and then sponsored the research of the Manta Trust, mm-hmm. who the Maldivian Manta Ray Project was their flagship um, project. Um, and they had a staff here only seasonally. Hello. There's a man on a bicycle with two coconuts driving <laughs> past. Wonderful. <laughs> Very normal. <laughs> and then in 2016, we partnered with Blue Marine Foundation, which is a UK charity that mm-hmm. um, had the campaign Back the Blue Belt, is trying to put in marine protected areas all over the world. Um, and then just in 2018, we partnered with the Olive Ridley Project, mm-hmm. who studies um, sea so you, turtles yeah. and tries to remove ghost nets and plastic pollution from the ocean. Um, so then our team just was growing, and suddenly we had 10 people doing all of this different work, but all we kind of wanted to um, put an umbrella, umbrella yeah. to work all towards the same goal. And, and that has become putting in a marine protected area in Lamu because currently there are none. And so really safeguarding all of the, you know, turtles, manta rays, coral reefs, fishing, all of these things for future generations, for locals, for tourists. Um, and so we've kind of channeled all of these people who are all working for the same goal under Mui is what we call it, and that means pearl in Divahi, in the oh, local language. I did language. not know that. That's... So it's a little play on we have the gems, the guest uh-huh. experience makers who um, look after the guests, and so now we are oh, Mui, Mui, the pearl who kind of looks after I mean, the natural a, environment. That's a little sickening, but <laughs> I'll accept it. Wonderful, thank you. I'm Aisha. Um, I'm from Maldives, and I'm working for Manchester as the assistant project manager for Lamwe et al., and I have worked for Manchester. I started working for Manchester in 2015, but I haven't been full time Manchester for the whole time, but sure. uh, like on and off Manchester. But now I'm back. Now you're back from outer space. Yeah, I'm <laughs> back with the flappy friends again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Nicole. I'm from the US. Um, I joined Manta Trust officially in January and had done some research and dissertation with work with them prior, but I'm the project manager for Lamotol. As someone who's from the Maldives, mm-hmm. what kind of relationship do you think the locals have with them? I mean, the one thing that I've realised is, despite it being a collection of islands, not it's it, an outsider could presume that everybody works the sea, everyone lives by the sea, but from what I can understand about some education programmes, people didn't learn to swim until they were quite late mm-hmm. in life. Yeah. Like, I didn't learn how to swim until I was 22. So 22? <laughs> yeah, I didn't. So on the shark project, yeah. you learned to swim yeah, for that? Yeah, that's when I, that's where I learned how to swim. I mean, it's the best story in the world, is that <laughs> somebody works for the Manta Trust as part of, uh, under an umbrella group of the Maldives underwater initiative, and you were 22 when you learned to swim. Yeah. How was it? Um, actually... Because I, I I sink still. Like when I get in the water, I sink. Like it's not normal to swim. It's terrifying. I'm really glad I sort of did it early on in life. Like 22. Yeah, I have always always wanted to learn, like, to be in the sea, and I always loved the marine environment. But when I was a kid, about six years old, I think, mm-hmm. my dad took me for snorkeling. He was holding me because I I didn't know how to swim, but I had a mask on. Sure. And that was like the most incredible thing I have ever seen. Probably the best trip I have ever seen. Can you Maybe remember the, what you saw in particular? I think it's just because that it was the first time sure. that it made it so incredible because I have never seen anything so beautiful. 
it wasn't maybe because the reef was so different sure. back well this then, would have been before the the big uh, destruction of the yeah reef, a so long kind of long time ago yeah. but it be- can't be that long ago really. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no maybe like 20 years ago <laughs> yeah so um so he obviously went. She loves being underwater. This is awesome. He, he knows. He We're knows. We're not like, going to let you go swimming every, anymore. Every every weekend, I ask him to take me snorkeling, but he's busy with his work, so he Does isn't he? really able to take me out. And how many miles from the seaside were you? Half a mile, two hundred meters, <laughs> maybe two hundred. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But but th- since then, I always wanted to be to see the marine environment, but I wasn't able to go because my parents were not willing to send me alone. But then when I was studying, like, I got this internship opportunity and I was like, oh, my God, this is, this is it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go, <laughs> even though I don't, I, I don't know how to swim. So I was like, I, I really don't know how to swim. I can float on the water. Uh-huh. That's all I can do. But I don't know anything else. So did you, you started in a swimming pool or you started no, in the sea? in the sea. So okay, my supervisors were Katie and he, um, Shamil from Welsh Shark Research Programme. And they they took me out just one day and taught me how to swim. In a day? Yeah. Yeah, out, like on the house reef. So my yeah, first duck you, diving video. You have to imagine <laughs> that. Like, she learned how to swim just out on the house reef, but to intern with this project and to look for these whale sharks, you're basically jumping off a boat onto a big reef wall that drops down like beyond 30 meters quite deep, <laughs> and you've got boats passing by, and then you have these giant sharks in the water, and uh-huh. you have to swim to keep up with them. So it's not like she was just swimming yeah. in a lagoon. So she was the serious swimming. <laughs> I was there for like about four weeks. And uh, the first week I was there, I didn't know how to swim. I can I can float on the water, but like yeah. I, I won't be sinking. But so I don't know how to use the fins, anything like that. And the first time I saw a whale shark, even then I didn't know how to swim. Like I was <laughs> back on the board, I was with this huge smile. I was like, oh my god, I just saw the whale shark, but I don't know how to swim. <laughs> yeah, and. I'm not saying anything not because I don't know the million questions. I'm completely incredulous. Mm-hmm. You're there. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I was basically <laughs> floating, like trying to bicycle kick next to the whale shark. The, the whale shark being the largest fish in the sea. See, yeah. yeah, I wasn't bigger scared. only by a mammal. Like uh-huh. that's by the blue whale. I mean, that's bonkers. Mm-hmm. And you weren't terrified. I wasn't. Like I wasn't scared to see our underwater and. So my, my little sister Helen, when she was learning to swim, she had this sort of a unitard thing that had these like floats strapped mm-hmm. around her that made her look a little bit like a suicide bomber. It was kind of tragic. <laughs> That's what I had. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> no. Um, you were just there in a wetsuit? Mm, yeah, just on my, with my race guard. And, like, I had... Well, when I first... When I first saw the whale shark, I was floating with a mask and a fins, trying to bicycle kick because I don't know how to use fins. <laughs> how, were this, how was the kicking going? Not very well. I don't know. So, so Some of the boat crews were even kind of joking, saying that I like... They were very impressed to see how deep I can go because I can't go. <laughs> I was basically just floating. So, that, so that's four years ago. Can you, how are you doing now? Have you got your five-meter proficiency badge? <laughs> yes, yes, she I definitely has it. Better than then. So I you, think so. You're scuba diving. Yeah, I'm scuba diving. I'm rescue certified. You're a rescue now. certified diver. Yeah, I'm, I'm soon gonna do my dive master here. I'm not a very good free diver. I can only go maybe about 10 meters. I'm how not long, like. How long can you hold your breath for? Less than a minute, maybe. I don't know. 
<laughs> but we don't have to free dive here very often because no. most of our mantas are scuba diving. At least yeah. um, I can free dive now. So in four years, you've come from not being able to swim <laughs> and probably only being in the sea once to being a rescue diver, yeah. to be a free diver, to working for the Manta Trust. <laughs> That's bonkers. I shouldn't have interviewed Guy, I should have interviewed you. <laughs> awesome. That's absolutely awesome. Wow. I'm, I'm kind of speechless. Congratulations. Yeah, a lot of people don't believe me when you, I say that. You put most human adults to shame. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> awesome. Like a lot of Maldivians. Like guys, I mean, young, even young boys, they know how to swim most of the time. Because they is grow it a up in the socio-cultural thing, is it? I Girls aren't allowed to. So as well, but even with, with the boys, like some of them, it's like the parents don't yeah. really want to send them alone because something might happen yeah. to them. So I think they're being a little bit protective. Um, is it changing? I mean, I know. So I mean, you've been going across and teaching them how to to mm -hmm. snorkel at the very mm -hmm. least. Some of them to swim, I guess. Mm -hmm. You were saying how you've just received a. A grant to provide mm -hmm. loads of snorkels and flippers for, for the I, schools in the area. Yeah, I think so. Like because now, now when I was younger, I don't really know it. many people who can swim even. That's bonkers. Like, yeah, that's absolutely bonkers. <laughs> I mean, the Maldives are ninety percent water. And yeah, <laughs> um, but now, like even a lot of parents are encouraging their kids to go and like be in the water, sure. be out. Like in the end, experience the nature more, more, more than like previously. So I think it is changing, but still, some of them. Like for example, we we took mom and do mom, mom's snorkeling the other day. Before they we took them before we took them for snorkeling, they were like a bit hesitant and mm -hmm. kind of scared, uh, even to send their kids. But after the snorkeling, we did little bit of like we asked some questions to the parents and we asked them if they would be willing to send their kids now so that now that they have seen how it looks like they're less scared and apprehensive. yeah so some of them are more more willing to send their kids uh, to to swim how i guess two questions how often do you get out into the community and who is it that's sending you is it the matter trust themselves or is it six senses in general so the education program here started as a matter trust um, kind of project, Hello Hallo, so the Hello Solution Solution Program, and it's grown and grown and grown, and now it's a much larger project. So now they basically they're going into four schools uh, and they're doing modules. So they're mm -hmm. different in different courses: one on coral reefs and megafauna, one on mangroves and seagrass ecology. And this puts us in these four schools at least once a month to do theory and then to do a practical lesson as well. And I sure. think that it runs over six months. Six months. Six yeah. months. How many kids in the class or in, in a year? At each one's about 20. 20. Yeah, okay. each one's about 20. And um, it's just the two of you that go out? No. Or? So the coral reefs and megafauna was us as well as Pip, who does the coral restoration. And mm -hmm. then in the next months, it will be different people. So because we're related to megafauna, that's sure. why we go for that one. But the next one is mangroves and seagrass. Um, there'll be more turtle stuff. So it'll be Joe and somebody else from the Six Senses Marine team. Okay. Uh, so Manta Trust goes as part, but more it's more it's of a, a Six big Senses. collective again. Yeah, it's more of a Six Senses education totally program put together. I mean, that's one of the. I mean, I've said this to so many people already. One of the best things about this resort is that there's. It's like there's a marine biology department. There is. You're all the staff that are there. I mean, it's it's kind of wonderful. They can follow you on 
on the yeah. Facebook there's a group mm -hmm. and it's so in some resorts if there's only one or two marine biologists it can be really difficult to do everything that we want to do so guest activities research community outreach but because there's so many of us here and we can work together on different things and plan things and one person takes charge of planning it but then other people get involved mm -hmm. you can really accomplish a lot more uh, so having such a large marine team and having it be so well supported by six senses is an incredible thing here sure yeah. a good step in the right direction good step in the right direction <laughs> Do you, uh, I guess, what, what skills do you think you bring as a native Maldivian? Um, to be able to speak the local language. I'm sure that would help. <laughs> huge. Huge, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because um, obviously the uh, Maldivian schools, their education is to English medium, so everyone speaks English. But when they go out and try to speak to them, they're a bit shy and like not yeah. very... Open I mean, Nicole's terrifying. But, I can <laughs> but then, like, if me or Shah, like a local person, starts talking to them in the local language, they are more open and they start talking and interacting. So it's one one of the things that I think is very useful, obviously. Um, and then also, like, when we do fishermen interviews, like much more open. much more open, yeah. and like some of them are, are not very fluent in English, sure. so it's a very useful thing. Are the local communities? <laughs> discovering that coming to you with information is a good thing for them it forms a good relationship I guess or I mean I, I guess my question is are you going to them for information or are they bringing the information to you willingly both ways really I think most of it right now is us going to them mm -hmm. but we've started to get information from people when they have seen Mantis sure. so we kind of started the relationship saying especially in Lamu and other places it's different but because there's so few tourists around here I think we've reached out to them first to ask, do you see Mantas? Can you give us information? And we have had some people come back with sure. information already. So that is a good sign. It's a good relationship. Mm, yeah. I just asked because obviously the, the turtles were brought in by fishermen who mm. knew that this was the place to come to if an ill turtle was yeah. found. And I guess That was an incredible thing to see happen, to see it work and to see a fisherman bring it to Lamu and to make sure that those turtles were okay was really, really amazing. So my name's Jo, I am originally from the UK, from Staffordshire, which is probably about as far away from the sea as you can get in the UK, which is I think why I became so fascinated with it. Um, I'm always associated with going on holiday or fun times with the family, mm -hmm. and then that kind of grew into what I wanted to do further on. So I always wanted to work with animals, but I also did a lot of competitive swimming. So wanted to combine the two, two, the love of water, the love of animals, and so marine biology became the, the obvious choice. We are now in Lamu Atoll, mm -hmm. um, and you work for the Olive Ridley Project. I do, yes. Um, can you tell me what an Olive Ridley turtle is to start with? Um, so they are one of the seven species of turtle that you get in the world. Um, we get five of the seven species here in the Maldives. Most commonly we see the, the green and hawksbill turtles, but we also get the olive ridleys, the loggerheads and the leatherbacks. But these are pretty rare to see. So olive ridley turtles spend most of their lives out in the open ocean, which is why we don't typically see them around the islands here. In the sure. Um, although this morning we saw two. Yes. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, they are the species that are most often found entangled in ghost nets. So discarded fishing gear, fishing line, anything like that, we tend to call a ghost net. And because of the way they, they live, they live out in the open ocean and they live around these algal mats in the ocean where a lot of their prey tends to congregate. Ghost nets act in a very similar way. And so the olive ridleys go along thinking, great. There's a nice load of algae there. Yeah. Lots of lots of my prey items around this area, and that's where they get entangled. 
Um, there aren't actually a huge amount of net fisheries in the Maldives, but particularly at this time of the year, we're in the, the northwest monsoon. We get a lot of water coming in from places like India and Sri Lanka, um, and that is where we get a lot of the nets coming in from, so a lot of the turtles are travelling in. It's been a sort of full day of it this morning. I saw you this morning with the two wounded um, turtles, and then on the first dive this morning we stopped to pick up a a ghost net. Oh, did you? Um, and as you say, it wasn't from local rubbish. There was mm. Taiwanese rubbish in there, Chinese rubbish in there, probably accumulated over a number of years. Yes. Um, having only sort of been diving this morning so far, to have seen the full story of, of turtle damage and the cause behind it is, is horrible. Yeah, it's, it's not particularly nice. And we do, with the way the currents work, we do end up seeing a lot of that in the Maldives, sadly, even though not a lot of this originates in the Maldives. But the, the nets are predominantly made out of plastic, which mm -hmm. takes a huge amount of time to break down. Um, we're, we estimate that about 640,000 tonnes of ghost net enters the ocean every year. Uh -huh. And with that not breaking down, we're constantly accumulating more and more in the ocean and when the, when the nets kind of come together they can form bigger kind of conglomerates which can sadly entangle lots of animals not only not only turtles but also sharks commercial fish species so it is a real problem so the two that turned up today what did you do how how where are they now and what journey have they been on mm, so they are now on their way to our rescue center which is in bar at all just a little bit further north um, so i can provide basic veterinary care here I know roughly what to do and, and how to how to swaddle the turtles how to what keep was them. wrong with the two this morning so the larger one that we had we had one large female and one smaller juvenile. she was about over a meter long I'd say uh, around not there. quite the, the, the shell was probably about 70 centimeters and then with her head yeah we were probably getting on getting on for a meter um, but olive ridleys are actually one of the, the smallest species of sea turtle. Okay. But that one was was an adult female. That one, she had a broken flipper. Um, so we, I wasn't comfortable releasing her back, but she was quite active. And sadly, she was thrashing around and since sustained a few more breaks in her flippers as well. Mm -hmm. So that's why we were trying to restrain her and trying to, to tie her up as best that we could so that she wouldn't injure herself further because that is one of the problems that turtles have. They are very, very strong animals, and sure. when they get entangled, they can wiggle around and they can even amputate their own flippers in, in oh ghost nets, sadly. Um, but yeah, that was, that was the larger one. The smaller one, we think, had been in there for much longer. Um, so it was looking a little bit more dehydrated, um, had lots of kind of scratches around its carapace, around its shell, um, and also had quite deep cuts in the front flippers as well, where the, where the net had entangled around the front flippers. So you provided first aid there and then, and then yes. babysit them whilst you wait for their transportation to turn up? Yes, exactly. Because we found them in the afternoon, we didn't have any way of getting them to the rescue centre um, that evening, so we had to take care of them overnight. Um, I slept in the dive centre, checking on them every half an hour. Didn't end up with much sleep. But, um, You've got about two hours now, three? Yeah, probably, probably. <laughs> <laughs> um, such, is, such is the day job. Uh, night job as well sometimes. Um, but but yes. you, you said these were the first two turtles that have been... Uh, where are we? Beginning of March now. So these are the first two yes. turtles that have been turned in this year. Um, yeah, we did have one that I heard about in January, but that one was hadn't been entangled very long, didn't have very 
very very minor injuries it had so so the guys that that found that one were able to release it straight away it dives straight down which was fantastic but these two needed a little bit more care which is why we brought them in and what was fantastic about these was it was actually a local boat that came in and and knew where to take the turtles knew we had marine biologists here knew that we had a turtle biologist here which was brilliant do you find that most locals know about the specialists on this atoll like Particularly on, on Six Senses, yeah, we have quite a big marine team, so there is a lot of knowledge that we're kind of spreading out to the, to the local communities. And one of the main points of the marine team here and also of Olive Ridley Project is education and, and awareness. So particularly with turtles, we run an annual turtle festival each year on okay. one of the local islands in the atoll. And that's all about raising awareness of the importance of turtles and, and conserving them as well. And so in terms of long-term plans, we do a lot of um, turtle ID work. So we're trying to get um, an idea of how big the turtle population is in Lamu, where the hotspots are. Um, We do that through photo identification on the sides of their face. So if we take photographs of each side of a turtle's face, the pattern on the side of their face is actually unique to an individual turtle. So it's kind of like a human fingerprint. We can identify which turtle it is, whether it's one we've seen before, whether it's one we haven't. And then we get an idea of population size um, and where those hotspots are and and things like that. So really increasing our database of that is one of the long-term goals. We are currently at 430 individuals, I believe. Perhaps even more. We've We've increased quite a lot fairly recently. Um, and then in terms of other goals is protection of Gardu, which is one of um, the uninhabited islands, just a little bit away from Six Senses. We think is one of the largest green turtle nesting sites in the Maldives. Wow. Um, but sadly, there is a lot of poaching that goes on. So people will go there, they will dig up nests and they will eat the eggs. So they will harvest the eggs. So establishing some sort of protection for that island, we think is absolutely crucial. Sure. Um, there's also been a little bit of talk about potential development on the island. So really making the case for that being a, a significant site for turtles and, and getting that protection where it's needed. When they lay, how many eggs do they lay? How many of those eggs hatch? How many of those turtles get to the sea? And how many of them get to adulthood? Oh, wow. There you go. All the stages of yeah. them. So it really varies um, depending on the species. So we've had green turtles nesting on this island. We actually had a record year this year. We had 31 nests. On this island itself? Mm-hmm. Like round, yeah. yeah, around the less island. populated side. Yeah, we're kind of out of season at the moment. The main season we think here is between kind of April and October. Okay. Um, so we're thinking in the next kind of few weeks we, we should be getting the first turtles coming up fingers crossed um, but yeah this is a this is a record year from this year um, I think last year we only had about seven or eight so real real bumpy year in terms of how many eggs they lay yeah it depends on the species green turtles normally anywhere between kind of 60 and 120 eggs in a nest Certainly. that's quite a few really depends on where the nest is situated as to the success rate of the eggs in terms of how many eggs hatch so there's lots of different variables be that the temperature of the nest whether um, it's how, how it's positioned on the beach, whether it's close to the high tide line, mm-hmm. whether it might kind of get flooded with sure. water, um, potentially how old the female is and, and the condition of the female. Do, does the temperature of the nest change the gender like it does in other it reptile does. species? Yes. So hotter temperatures mean more females, cooler temperatures mean more males. And do we need more of one than the other? 
So I'm not entirely sure here specifically in Lamu, but I know that it is becoming a problem in other places. We are, with the temperatures rising, we are getting more females. So I think, I believe I read something in Australia where they were trialling ways of actually cooling the sand to try and adjust the, adjust the gender balance a bit so that we could get more males. Because obviously if we're getting only females coming through, the that population's has gonna... population impact. And do we think that's as a result of global warming? or? Yes, yeah. There, there are so many side effects to global warming that no one recognizes or accepts I think that's the exactly thing. yeah it's um, bonkers there are there are lots of different aspects to it and we're constantly kind of coming up with with new ways that the changing temperature and the, and the differences that we are experiencing might be affecting the natural world so it is it's quite alarming and especially when you get perhaps some people in power that, that don't believe in climate change or it's, it's quite difficult to well, at least the final lot of turtles will all be women and the patriarchy will be put into its place and the future will be... There we go. ...albeit for a very short period of time run Yeah, until by they all die out, we'll be run by, run by female turtles. <laughs> Wonderful, thank you. No worries. So, Nicole, we just went out on a dive, our second dive together. Um, tell us about the one yesterday, I guess, first, about how we were told by a local fisherman and all that kind of thing. So when we were at a school visit, so we were there to teach some kids to snorkel on one of the local islands. Uh, after the school visit, we talked to a fisherman and we just asked him if he had seen any mantis and what he said was that he had seen them uh, the two days prior. So in Lamu, the local knowledge is really valuable and sometimes we don't necessarily know where these animals are going to be. So then therefore we go out and we check the areas that they tell us. Uh, so they see a lot of things that we don't get to see. So they give us some really important information, which is why we decided to go and look for surface feeding there. And did we find any? We did not find, we did any, not find any, but we still tried. It's, it's one of the nice things is talking um, uh, talking to Joe about the olive ridley turtles and uh, the local fishermen finding those turtles in the in the ghost reefs and the other fishermen telling that the mantis are here. There's a lovely crossover between the local societies, the fishermen, and the NGOs that are working here, yes. which, is, which is great. Um, another thing that happened on the dive we just went on today uh, again we went out to a special place called Manta Point following the sightings of mantas and what did we find? We didn't find any mantas. Not a single manta <laughs> but we saw about 11 turtles 11 think? different green turtles. And unfolding before my eyes one thing that I saw was a turtle head up to the surface which you saw at the same time. Um, what happened after that? It was really odd because it had just come down from the surface and it just come down in front of us and then started to head up to the surface again and I was kind of watching it to see if I could get an ID photo and it actually swam directly into a plastic bag and I think it was probably going to try to buy the whole of that plastic bag. It got right on top of it. Like yeah, it, was there. it touched it. <laughs> it definitely touched it um, and then it kind of went back down again so I don't think it was necessarily going up to breathe. I think it was probably going to bite that bag. Thinking, thinking it, was it was a, a jellyfish. jellyfish. Yeah. Um, I've got a bit of that on, on my GoPro, actually, so you can look like a hero. Um, and you still have that plastic bag now. Yes. Yeah. Now, that bag was a biodegradable yes. plastic bag. So on the plastic bag itself, it says it biodegrades within 12 to 18 months. And it says the manufacture date on it was February 2018. And it might biodegrade in 12 to 18 months, but... It we hasn't don't, gone yet. It hasn't gone yet, and a turtle might get a hold of it before then. And even if it does biodegrade, it just breaks down into smaller plastic pieces. So it's never going to fully disappear. It's sure. still a plastic bag. So we can't prevent a turtle from getting it in that amount of time. It's a step in the right direction, but it's still not a step far enough. Yeah, not quite. Um, so my name's Pip. I'm from a small village near Leamington Spa. 
in England, um, which is pretty much as close to the centre of England as you can get and as far from the coast. That seems to be what everyone starts <laughs> with. Everyone's from Staffordshire or the Midlands in some form. Yeah. It's... And we've all made our way to the ocean somehow. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, I now work at Six Senses Lamu in the Maldives Underwater Initiative. I'm the research coordinator here. Uh, for the team of marine biologists. So um, I was actually working in Maldives from 2000 and 2015 to 2017. Okay. And the as an instructor. Excuse as an instructor. Student, sure. And I didn't have too much knowledge about corals or the reef or anything. And then um, in 2016 was the massive major bleaching event. And I saw the corals in front of my eyes. I saw the whole process happen. And mm-hmm. I wanted to understand it and I wanted to help it. And I didn't really understand what was going on. I was talking so, to our instructor today and he was saying how when it first happened, everyone just thought it was a natural occurrence, that it just was a thing mm-hmm. and that everything would then go back and that he, as someone who'd been diving for best yep. part of a decade, just wasn't too worried about it. Well, it, it does happen and it does go back if it's not for too long. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a natural reaction from the corals to temperature stress, but in 2016 it happened for three weeks, which was just too long, and Why the corals died. So um, a bit of coral anatomy for you. <laughs> um, so corals are tiny little animals that live in a colony. Mm-hmm. Um, they all originate from the same um, little animal that settles there. The larvae settles and then develops into a full polyp. And then the polyp starts to just clone itself. Sure. Um, so every animal in that colony is a clone of the very first one that settled there. Okay. Um, so that's one part to it. Um, that animal has a mouth in the center and it has tentacles around the outside. Um, and it gets about, well, depending on the species, about 20 to 30% of its food from the water around it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can be like tiny shrimp, it can be zooplankton, it could be anything. Um, but the other 70 to 80% of its food it gets from um, an algae that lives inside its tissues uh, called zooxanthellae. Mm-hmm. And this algae photosynthesizes the waste products the coral uses, um, and there was also oxygen in there through photosynthesis. Amazing. Um, so that doesn't quite link to bleaching yet. I'm getting there. No. I mean, <laughs> how many other species on the planet uh, clone themselves in that way? That's pretty rare. Um, I'm not sure. I think it's a pretty unique thing to corals to sure. live in a colony like that. Um, and they can communicate as well. If there's a food source on one side of the colony, they will communicate through the colony and transfer it to the rest of the colony. Do we know how they do that? Um, you're getting really technical questions now. <laughs> hmm. So the um, bleaching happens because the temperature is raised to... More than yes, so the the temperature raises and the light intensity also gets higher. Um, and basically, it's not the coral that is reacting to it; it's the algae that lives inside the tissues. Okay. So instead of photosynthesizing normally, um, the algae produces a reactive oxygen instead of a normal O2, and that is toxic to the to the coral animal. So it can no longer house that algae inside its tissues; it has to release it because sure. otherwise it's damaging in the inside of the coral. Um, so it has to release the algae. Um, it's also the algae that gives the coral its colour. The animal itself would be clear otherwise. Um, and the white you're seeing when the coral bleaches sure. is actually the skeleton you can see through the clear animal. Oh, okay. So that's why it's called bleaching. Um, sure. But without the algae inside it, it loses its colour and it also loses its main food source. So if the temperature returns to normal um, and the algae becomes acceptable to the coral again, it can then accept it into its tissues and sure. it can recover. But if it's for too long, the coral will pretty much starve. Um, so in 2016... Does it end up hollow and brittle then? Or? Um, so the... The centre of the, the inside of the coral will be the skeleton, mm-hmm. that is the white part. Sure. Um, that's what gets ground down to the white sandy beaches here in Maldives. Okay. Um, but normally, when it's living, it has the layer of living polyps on the outside, so the living tissue on the outside. Um, so when it ejects its algae, um, you can see through the animal and you can see the skeleton um, on the inside. Um, and then when it dies, all of the tissue will fall away. The the 
um, like animal part mm -hmm. will be stripped away um, and then it will just be the skeleton for a very brief time and then competition for space on the reef is so high that immediately algae will settle on it or some other kind of thing sure. um, so it will become covered and it will start to look more like a rock or a normal thing on the reef so, and so, so that's coral bleaching in a nutshell that's coral bleaching <laughs> in a nutshell and so are all the beaches in the Maldives basically just dead coral yeah, it's basically ground down calcium carbonate skeleton. It's not just the beaches. All of the islands are built from coral wow. um, billions of years ago. Um, and atoll is formed from the top of a volcano. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you know much about atoll I, I do. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a volcano that comes up from the seabed, mm -hmm. but then uh, you just, you're just left with the rim of it underneath. Yeah, so, so the coral grows around the edge of the volcano. Sure. And then when the volcano is dormant and it's no longer growing anymore... Um, the volcanic rock is more dense than the seabed so when it's no longer growing it will just recede and sink back into the seabed sure. um, but the coral is doing the opposite it's continue growing so it will leave a ring around the okay. edge so that's why most atolls are of kind of vague circular shape so you're trying to get the Maldives turned into a protected area last night the Ascension Islands were made into a protected area mm -hmm. by Philip Hammond which is a British colony there you go facts off the top of my head <laughs> British overseas territory there we definitely go. didn't just google that so <laughs> This is your main ambition now, is to try and get the Maldives protected? Well, not the whole of Maldives. Actually, a few years ago, the whole Maldives government decided they wanted to designate the whole country as the first ever whole country biosphere reserve. Mm -hmm. The level of protection, what that actually means, is always variable. Like, a marine protected area doesn't necessarily mean that you can't touch it. There's so many different levels of protection. Like, sometimes it's it can only be used for tourism. Sometimes sure. it's you can only use fishing, like line fishing. Sometimes it's you can use it for many other things yeah. but it's got that title um, so here in Lamu we're trying to get a few different areas protected and there's a lot of research that says like smaller connected areas of protected of protection zones mm -hmm. are more affected than one massive area okay and part of the reason for that is because you have to think about the fishermen and the people as well yeah it needs the entire society community we're part of the ecosystem as much as just the dolphins. Definitely. And the overspill from one small protected area is actually, um, like, it spills out to the outside of it. Sure. So if you have one no-take zone and then you have, like, a buffer zone around the middle where certain activities are allowed, like, the, the benefits overspill to the rest of the ecosystem mm -hmm. and the rest of the area. You were saying earlier how you were helping out Jo with her turtles mm -hmm. and she in turn and the others in turn help you out with your, your coral. Like yes. going out to identify, I guess. <laughs> yeah, so so many of the things we do here, we need a team. Mm -hmm. Like if you're going to do a survey, you need a team of like three or four. Um, if you're trying to monitor turtle hatching nests throughout the night, someone's going to kill themselves if they do that all night on their own. Yeah. So all of the projects here, we're, we're a big team. We're normally about 10 marine biologists and each of our jobs involves the help of at least five people. Um, but we all have our specialist um, area. Sure. So... Um, it's great that we get to get all of that knowledge and experience from other people. It's great that we've got knowledgeable and experienced hands to help mm -hmm. us. Um, in addition, we have some interns. We Our intern positions are advertised to Maldivians only. Oh, okay. Um, so that we can kind of... Bring in people bring from in the community people. and then send out the information out with yeah, them when they finish. Like the research intern we have here at the moment is from Marfushi, which is a local island. And it was one of the first islands in Maldives once guest houses were allowed um, to open up to guest house tourism. And they do loads of water sports there, loads of snorkeling trips, loads of diving. Mm -hmm. But obviously it's a lot less regulated than the resorts are. Um, and one of the reasons we really wanted to employ him and bring him here is because he's from that island. He's worked as an excursion guide for many years. Sure. 
and his main reason for coming to Six Senses here and working with us is that he wanted to learn best practices from here. He wanted to gain some kind of authority so that when he went back to this guest guest house island where like there's no regulations at all on like snorkeling there's no best practices there's sure. nothing um, there's no real like marine education that goes with the snorkeling things um, he wants to take that on from here and take it back to his island and even set up some kind of initiative where it's an NGO or whether it's some kind of collective group that are putting pressure on the guest houses to sign up to XYZ whether it's like reducing plastic or not standing on the corals or yeah. only having like 10 people around one whale shark at a time instead well, it, of crowding them it strikes me that unless you get the locals to play ball then there's no point in having a protected area here definitely yeah. um, that's one of the things Blue Marine Foundation are doing there their whole thing, their NGO, is um, revolves around really setting up marine protected areas. So my name is Vivian Evans. I work for the Blue Marine Foundation, which is a British uh, London-based marine conservation charity uh, whose remit is to um, create marine protected areas and establish sustainable fishing models. Lovely. And where are you from originally? I'm from London, but my parents are South African. So oh, cool. I wouldn't consider myself properly British, even though I have a very pommy accent. <laughs> did you grow up in South Africa or did they emigrate when you... No, no. They, so they emigrated and then I grew up in the UK. And do you still have family down there? I do. Yes. My dad lives in South Africa, so I go there once a year. Oh, okay, cool. And yeah. you dive there or...? I have I have dived there. Divin. Divin. Dove. Dove, Dove yeah. I have dived there out in Sedwana Bay. Um, which is really nice. And I recently actually came back from Mozambique where I was doing my dive master, even oh, though that's not South Africa, but close. No, it's it's, it's certainly not central London. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, so why do you work for the Blue Marine Foundation? What made you go on a life devoted to the sea? Uh, that's a really good question, actually. I think um, I have, yeah, my parents to thank a lot for my kind of love and appreciation of the natural world. How so? Well, when I was young, I was very lucky to have a house... Um, in South Africa, even when we were living in England, and um, my my dad is a, a real sort of bushman. He actually was born in Swaziland and grew up on a sugarcane uh, oh, farm. Yeah, so he's he's mad about the bush, and you know, I think a lot of South Africans kind of having it around them are quite sort of environmentally aware. Uh-huh. <clears throat> so I used to want to do African wildlife conservation, and then when I was, but it's always with an emphasis on wildlife. I guess that's the yeah. similarity between being a bushman and being underwater is these are uncontrolled environments yeah and I guess I've kind of liked I don't know I just get so much joy from being around nature and seeing it so yeah when I was 19 I I did I did my paddy on the Great Barrier Reef and then I went on to study zoology for my undergraduate where did you study that at Royal Holloway okay in the University of London and um and then after that, I still wasn't really sure for a while what I wanted to do. And then just before my third year, um, I went on one of these things where you can go and do your research uh, project abroad. And I went to South Sulawesi in Indonesia and dived on the coral reefs there, and I just fell in love. Hmm. And, um, and then I decided to do my master's in marine environmental management. There's a through line with a lot of the people who work here, either for the NGOs or as freelancers, that they came through a pleasure of diving into a conservation element. Do you think they run in tandem? Do you have to enjoy being underwater? This sounds like a stupid question, but... No, not at all. I think... It's um, a world where work and play go very much hand in hand. Yeah, I mean, I think to a certain extent, yes, but I would also say there are a lot of divers who unfortunately really don't care about the environment and they do a lot for their ego. So -hmm. you would hope that if you dive and you kind of experience, you know, the underwater world that you would have such a strong appreciation for it and its fragility, but I wouldn't say that's necessarily always the case. But I think, yeah, it's definitely something I think 
that inspires people to do more mm -hmm. when they start diving. So what's your day-to-day -day job entail here with the Blue Marine Foundation? Um, I'm not, well, I'm not normally based here now. Okay. Um, I, I go in between London and here. Um, it can range from a number of things, writing, funding proposals, um, going on sort of research dives, mostly writing letters to the government a lot of the time, uh, organising logistics of our activities. Um, we work a lot with the fishermen here. So when we first started working here, we were working to improve the sustainability of the grouper fishery. Mm -hmm. um, Groupers are a kind of fish, quite yeah. varying size from very, very small to very, 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 very big. Yeah, groupers are, unfortunately for them, not always the prettiest of fish. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they kind of have this permanent grumpy, uh, grumpy frown on their face. Um, but they're sort of one of the most important, arguably the most important uh, group of reef fish on coral reefs. They kind of sit, if you think about the kind of food web and chain, they sit just below sharks. And um, they have very uh, vulnerable life history traits, so they don't mature until, but some of them, until they're about 22 years old. Okay. And they form these mass spawning aggregations where they come together in predictable places at the same time and sort of have almost like a mass orgy, so to speak. <laughs> they sound awesome. <laughs> yeah, so they're very easy to target for fishermen. So, uh, yeah, unfortunately for them, very easy to be overfished. <laughs> and are they still being overfished, or is, does that seem to be changing? Uh, unfortunately, they are still being overfished. There's actually no examples from across the world of what you could call a sustainable group fishery. Okay. Uh, they kind of, as soon as you start fishing them, they sort of exhibit this very kind of classical, like, peak in the fishery where you'll be making lots of money off it and then immediately a couple of years later your catches will just drop sure. just because of their traits and in the Maldives there's both pressure uh, for groupers they're exported to Asia mm -hmm. where they're sort of sold um, as food fish on restaurants and they can sort of one grouper can be sold for more than a hundred dollars oh, wow. and then also they're sold at a lot of resorts in the Maldives even though there are many species that are actually listed on the IUCN red list as threatened ah. Not at Six Senses. So you're based here at Six Senses on Lamu Atoll. You were brought here originally for the groupers. Yes. You're now running a seagrass campaign or co-running a seagrass campaign? Yes, so we started this seagrass campaign because a lot of people don't realise that a lot of resorts across the Maldives uh, remove or kill the seagrass around their islands because they think that guests don't like the way it looks uh -huh. and it ruins the kind of clear lagoon waters. Well, one of the best things I've found is that you can go snorkelling it and yesterday alone we saw uh, a massive ray, which was a cow tail ray. Yes, cow tail ray, yeah. A uh, very wonderful person at the Blue Marine Foundation <laughs> told me which species that was. Um, and, yeah, there's everything. We saw green turtles down there, mm. and if anything, they seem to be attracting species rather than causing a nuisance. They make things far more exciting. Yeah, exactly, and that's what we're trying to, to sort of show resorts, and thank God we have the backing of Six Senses, mm -hmm. which, you know, as an environmentally responsible business... Um, you know, the team here have been able to film some of some of the guests that come here, saying, "I've had amazing experiences," and we're trying to promote this culture of ecotourism in the Maldives. Mm -hmm. You know, the Maldives is a country that relies entirely on tourism, and the tourism relies entirely on the health of coral reefs. And so, the Maldives could be a global leader in marine conservation if it wanted to be. Um, it's just failing to do so at the moment. So, we're hoping to change that. If there's any project that you could spearhead next, personally, what would you like to do? I would like to see. Um, I would like to see their uh, a, a sort of uh, environmental guidelines developed for resorts in the Maldives that they have to follow by law. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, as I mentioned before, that most people rea don't realise when they come to the Maldives 
um, how irresponsible most of the resorts are here. And they do a fantastic job of greenwashing their guests. Mm -hmm. You know, my absolute pet peeve is is coral restoration here in the Maldives. It's a fad where people will talk about, you know, buy a coral frame, save a coral reef, and you won't believe what these resorts charge. They'll say to a guest, you know, do this, and they charge $500 for one guest to do this. And So what do they do exactly? They will take a piece of uh, coral from the reef and plant it on a maybe a steel frame or something or some other kind of structure and they say you know we're helping the reef to grow and promoting this and it's a total uh it's a it's a controversial issue but you know it's it never works out as a long-term conservation solution Mm -hmm. and it's kind of a money-making business for the resorts and the marine biologists who often do it as well don't actually have the expertise to know about the what the impacts will be when they do that okay for you to be able to understand uh, coral species, you need to have a microscope, you need to have years of expertise. So when they're doing that, they're actually genetically modifying coral reefs and making them less resilient. And they're making the guests think that they're doing a great job and actually they're just making money off it and they're sure. doing pretty much zero for conservation. Okay. So Everyone a- thinks they're doing the right thing, but through the process they're all doing the wrong thing. Yeah. Uh, such is life. Um, <laughs> yeah. If there's any one... Uh, reef or spot that you think best demonstrates the work of blue where do you think that is what do you think that is i wouldn't say a reef or spot per se but i would say lamu atoll as an area in the maldives i think what we have managed to create here together with six senses and everyone that works here is the first example of a multi-stakeholder sort of working model in the maldives where you know we've got the private sector on board we've got the local atoll council Lamu Atoll Council, we have very good relations with them. Mm-hmm. We do community work, we interact with the community, and that doesn't happen at a lot of places in the Maldives. And that's why I think we've got this conservation model here, and that why, you know, now that we're going to create this MPA, I think it's going to be a success. And this is kind of what we're hoping to kind of prove here in Lamu and take to other parts of the Maldives and prove that, you know, conservation, you know, it's not difficult, it's not rocket science, you can do it. Mm-hmm. You know, you just need to um, be smart about it. And it's in the interest of resorts and everyone involved to do it. You know, no one loses from it. So it's a win-win situation. Perfect. That's <laughs> a great place to end. That's wonderful. Try that. Well, that's really sweet. Do you know what a sweet plant is? Or a name of a sweet plant? Maybe, I guess. That's so sweet. Becoming that, very trendy. Stevia? Have you heard of stevia? No, what is that? Ah, so it's one of the most natural alternatives to white sugar. Okay. Um, and the plant isn't doing very well here, but yeah, you can see stevia. Is it too hot or? Just in general, it's difficult to grow things in the Maldives. Um, the soil quality isn't so good because sure. the islands are basically broken down coral. Um, That's why you get the bright white sandy beaches. It's exactly. It's, it's coral it's skeletons. Calcium carbonate. Here, try this is the other end of the spectrum. That looks like some kind of rocket. It is, but have you ever tasted a rocket as spicy as that? Oh, wow. Yeah. That hurts. <laughs> <laughs> my guess, my question is, this is a luxury resort. There is a certain amount of money you have to spend to come here. Mm-hmm. Do you think that a sustainability model is doable on a budget? Yeah. If you are in uh, a village, you're not going to be importing you know, French wine mm-hmm. into into your village, you're going to be sourcing locally. 
therefore there's going to be less packaging sure. it's going to be um, not traveling so far so it's not going to have preservatives you're going to use local tradition and um, the the way that the local people know how to do things and mm -hmm. so inherently the way that things were done 50 100 years ago were very sustainable yeah and very local so it isn't really it's not until, new technology it's not new ideas yeah, it's, it's just the ideas have come back around and are now trendy. And like slowing down a little bit. I think now we're in such a fast-paced society where we want everything very quick, convenient, disposable. And in that manner, I think we have lost a little bit of the quality of life. Sure. Um, where, yeah, you're just getting back to kind of how things used to be. So, really yeah, good. we give yeah. a tour pretty much every day. A lot of people are curious to see where do we live and where do we go. And we slide in all of the sustainability stuff. And so people are either pleasantly surprised or they already know about the six senses philosophy and want to learn about mm -hmm. it and hopefully you'll get a sound of oh not uh, this bird <laughs> yeah we know what that <laughs> one the is the previous one um is one of the only birds that lives on the island it's called the asian coel mm -hmm. or in the local language coaveli it's a type of quail okay and you'll hear it more than you can see it because it um it's very elusive but it's kind of Black and white. Again, that, it's back on different bird, but we have just arrived to our Kukulu village. So Kukulu means chicken in the local language. Which is one of the first Maldivian words I learned because the, uh, the tuna are called the Kukulu of the sea. Yes, exactly. So welcome. These are our hey, 51 hens and four very lucky roosters led by friends. This beautiful male is the leader of the flock. I've heard him a lot around the island, yeah. it must be said. And we also oh, have some chicks. eight little babies, maybe they're three weeks old now. Um, what breed of chicken are they? They're local Maldivian chickens. So oh, wow. after the um, 2004 tsunami, actually Maldivian chicken is really hard to come by and so it's really rare to actually have, uh, have local Maldivian chickens. It's fun to have some well, animals my... on the island where otherwise it's just lizards and crabs and that's about it. Nope, I don't. Um, you know, my father has chickens in his garden. They've got, mm -hmm. I think, seven now. They they can't give the eggs away fast enough. Oh, really? Um, maybe if there was a CO2 neutral way to deliver his eggs to to the South Indian Ocean, maybe yeah. he could. But I think from the south coast of England, that might be a little bit of wishful thinking. Yeah. But yeah, I think a lot of people are kind of moving back to mm. producing their own food, having a garden, having chickens. One of the things I've really loved about um, this resort is you have a barefoot policy so basically everyone's walking around barefoot which has been wonderful until I just realised we were walking around a chicken coop yeah. in bare feet so I've, I've got stuff between my toes right now yeah. and I, I don't want to look at that <laughs> and so, just before we oof. pass this is that fruit I was talking about the corkwood uh, the ones tree. that look like the lime but it's cork so there might be some Oh yeah, no, I've seen. That's the husk. That's the the yeah, little okay. nut on the inside, and then when it falls to the ground, these are all new ones of this tree trying to grow. Fantastic. It's really funny when you actually throw up, because <laughs> then the fish will come and start feeding on the on the puke. Are you suggesting that this is a, a, a definite <laughs> a way to attract fish? Yeah, to you. yeah. A Maldivian practice of of how to get a first-hand encounter very close up. <laughs> yeah, it's it, that. It's not a really nice feeling to. I never enjoy throwing up, you know, unless if it's on a heavy night and you need to wake up really next day morning, then you do like... I thought Paddy always said, don't go drinking the night before you go diving. <laughs> <laughs> They'll strike you off the Paddy Yeah, records. it's like doctors like say, you don't, you, you, you not, 
smoking his paid for and then he goes on anyway we're rolling um let's start by just taking turns to introduce yourself where you're from and what you do yeah my name is Shaha and I'm a Maldivian I work in the marine conservation field um, currently I'm working with the UK best charity called Blue Marine Foundation based here at Six Senses in Lamoto and the man sitting to your right hand side who are you Hi, my name is Hassan and I'm a Maldivian too. I'm a diving instructor. I've been working in this industry for the last 25 years, I guess, give or take. Yeah, started in 94 actually. Start straight up from fresh school back to tourism industry and as a kid, I fell in love with the surrounded beautiful water around us and then as a child, I've been always spear fishing, fishing, being snorkeling, and I, I couldn't totally get leave this fishy, fishy thing. So I, <laughs> I thought that I need to jump and like learn scuba diving. So fortunately, it, I was in the right place at the right time. To so is, was your island nearby Lamaratul? How far? No, away I, is I'm actually from. We both are actually from capital Mali. Okay. So by then Mali, I mean I grew up. I'm um, in the 70s, so it's uh, not that easy if you like comparing today to become a dive, become a diver, or at least even open water diver. It was hard by then because in Mali we don't have really dive centers or snow clinic, and or none of it. You had to to go somewhere nearby resort or somewhere that mm -hmm. you could like to follow the course. Yeah. So when he was growing up, Male was like an inhabited island like Gan. Sure, yeah, right, the one capital over there. here. Yeah. But when I was growing up in the nineties it has it had started to change. And the way uh, we were brought up also changed. Hasung, um, when he was a kid, he was able to go out and enjoy the sea. Mm -hmm. But I grew up inside the house and I didn't get to experience the ocean much. Well, I was talking to Maisha the other day, who didn't learn to swim until she was 22. Yeah. And then learned to swim so that she could work with, re with whale sharks. Yeah. <laughs> when, when did you learn to swim? Um, I learned to swim in a school program. Okay. So back then we had a program called Every Child Swims in Marley. Mm -hmm. So my first experience was in a, like a confined lagoon area where we couldn't really see much underwater, mm -hmm. but just swimming back and forth. But my first experience... Um, snorkeling and actually experience in, in the underwater world was when we went on a school camp mm -hmm. and they took us to explore the reef, learn about the fish and these sort of and things. And there was no yeah. going back. So, so the interesting thing about you two is that you're a couple, you're married. Yeah. <laughs> so how does that work? There's a, a dive master and somebody who works for the Blue Marine Foundation. I mean, mm. that's, <laughs> that's great. Yeah. You, you're scratching each other's backs, uh, yeah. metaphorically and literally. Yeah. <laughs> it goes very well for both of us. Take, oh, my, I'm, I'm, I, mean, I mean, I don't have any paper to prove that I'm, a, I'm an expert, but I think my passion is fish because as a kid, I'm so much in love with aquarium and so so I happen to know quite large amount of fish which is surrounded by us, their species or their mm -hmm. names and everything. So Shaha and me, we have really a good bond with uh, with um, with sea because whenever 
we had to identify something to somebody and then she comes to me and then I help her to find <laughs> out this fish name and then... Is one of you the fish expert and one of you the flora expert? Like, do you have a crossover? <laughs> You're well, doing your the, pole research. He is the fish expert and I'm slowly catching up with him. One of, one of the favorite <laughs> things that I've discovered this week was going to speak to Nicole, who works with the Manta Trust, saying, so mm -hmm. when do you think the best chance will be of seeing a Manta? And she said, well, I don't know, you should go and speak to Hassan. <laughs> He's the one who'll know. Yeah. And then she was saying the other day that there's, um, down at Hitterdue West, there's now a block that's named after you, a semi-unofficial. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, I stumbled upon that. It's been, uh, uh, for ages we've been always trying to look for the new places and things and then there was a day I happened to go to dive and then I saw this block in 19 meters and then I don't think anybody have have noticed this block or never tried to go but then I happened to have twice seen Manta cleaning on this block in mm. like good fair amount of Manta like five to six months now and then so we now call it <laughs> now they call it like Hassan block bad just to identify, but still there's a lot to go to find a um, little nice. bit more around, even have a close by, because Lamu never been that much explored actually, I mm. mean explored. Well this is the only resort, resort in, yeah, the, in the Atoll. Yeah, yeah. and soon they're going to uh, come in the second one, but I don't know how, uh, how soon it's going to be, but for now it's been eight years, this is the only place, so we have... Well, so, ho hopefully your block underneath the water will become legendary. <laughs> 500 years from now, they'll still be saying, who is this Hassan? <laughs> he was an infamous local dive master. He invented all these new techniques, etc., etc. Yeah, so I get my tips and tricks from him mm -hmm. um, when we are exploring the other areas in the atoll for group spawning aggregation sure. sites. He was giving me like tips and uh, you should check this area. Like There, there can be blocks there. Or mentors cleaning yeah. there, and that's how we discovered the Fushikanda cleaning station. Sure, sure. On the other side of the atoll as well. So, yeah. how often do you get to go diving together? <laughs> Not that often now. Not we, now. We actually met on a dive boat, so we used to go um, diving on the weekends when we were in Male. Mm -hmm. So then, back then, he used to work on a safari boat. Sure. And like whenever I had time, I used to go and die with him yeah and when i came here like after <laughs> you don't while, seem entirely comfortable with this going on <laughs> no no it's totally it is nothing i mean i just uh, just thinking about the, those days yeah it was wonderful yeah because when we go because we we, we like really good buddies like sort of when we dive in because uh -huh. we know each other well, we don't have for those who don't know what a buddy in diving terms is yeah. you partner up partner up exactly safety, yeah sorry not, yeah. not buddies yeah. as in <laughs> your buddies and your buddies yeah so it makes really comfortable diving. She would know we don't have to really plan that much. Mm. We'll read each other's mind very well, like mm -hmm. you know. So we all like she got good eyes on small things sometimes. Then I have the, the sort of looking at new things, finding new things, and then she's more into photography rather than me because I. If I involve in taking pictures that I don't see the real beauty, in. Sure, sure. so uh, I find things for her, and she's the actually the photographer in this little 
<laughs> partnership. Partnership, yeah. So you're unofficially sort of working for the Blue Marine Foundation, sort of behind the scenes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, no, I mean, I'm helping every conservation because that's uh, that's my aim is I would be helping whichever the mm-hmm. a way that we could help to protect and find a way to find this whole solution to the, our, our environment. That we How do you feel working in a place where you're, I mean, you're technically here as the dive master yeah. to, to work with people like me, the yeah. hunters, but you're working in a resort that actively champions uh, conservation work and ecological work, working with foundations like the Blue Marine Foundation. How do you find that? Do you in- I mean, one of the great things about being a diver is you naturally have uh, an appreciation for ecology, yeah. the yeah, flora, sure. the fauna that you see. But I guess you get to go a step further and actually support the Yeah, it, it, it brings, uh, I mean, it's a really good advantage. I mean, the resorts before I worked on other places I never had, but Six and Sislamo is very much pushing into lots of conservation programs like Mantatra, Olive Ridley, Blue Marine Foundation and, and etc. So the best thing working here as well, it's I meet lots of experts like who comes that I mean with knowledge and then to, to exchange words with them it brings me really uh, fantastic. I really like meeting people like uh, who would say that was Mark Edmund. Mark Edmund and Jerry and Ellen, Jerry Ellen last year. fish experts they and came they were trying to find new species of fish sure. yeah. so we got to dive with them um, quite a lot yeah. did yeah. they find any yeah they found yeah. loads of them I and they took the fish specimens with them and then they, it's a long process because they have to do genetical uh, what do you call that? Gen- Genetic analysis yeah. and exactly, yeah, yeah, and yeah. peer review the papers. So it's a, it takes a long time to get these papers published. Sure. Yeah. But we have a couple of new species coming yeah. through. Great. Yeah. I think that's. Yeah. Are they going to name them Shaha? <laughs> <laughs> we almost slipped. There was a fish that we spent like we, we, I don't know. We accidentally like discovered a potential new fish, yeah. but we didn't get to capture it or get take a photograph. So, but I hope they're coming the back. Whale. Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot So we, it's tiny fish, so we, we, we speculate there. I mean, I'm sure there's, since do I Do you ki- know tunicates or acidians? Go on about it. Yeah, so they are um, this, what do you call them? Sort a of crater, like a, a marine crater mm-hmm. with the hole, with the hole in on one side. And if you like gently waft over it or touch it there, it, they're close. Okay. So these are called acidians. Sort yeah, of like a Venus flytrap plant kind of thing. Yeah, yeah sort of like, kind of. yeah. But are they, are they jelly-like? Are they like jelly-like, jelly-like sort of, but yeah. they are beautiful oh, colours of them. I think we saw yeah. one coming up the other day from the first dive. Yeah, sort of looked like, um, I don't know, like, like, like a big Bello. dome of the jellyfish, yeah. but without the legs or anything. It was yeah, just sort of, they okay. come in different shapes and sure. colours. So apparently there's only one fish that's been described that lives in this um, acidian. Okay. So we potentially found another fish when I was just like looking around yeah. and I saw that there was something moving inside it uh-huh. so I called um, Jerry and, Jerry we, were and, <laughs> and we were we were like, trying to see what was inside and the fish suddenly jumped out yeah Jerry couldn't like, put the proper net yeah. because it's so tiny we had to have a special kind of net to sure. just do so we missed it so we went for a second try but then we never see it but so uh, hopefully we'll find it again <laughs> there was a dive the other day where I was out there and you were getting so excited pointing this thing and then sort of like darting around and, and normally when someone's being that frenetic underwater there's really something wrong <laughs> yeah. you'd spotted a fish that you you hadn't seen since the, the bleaching back yeah then. because every time because 
in in my lifetime this is my second experience of bleaching mm-hmm. so in 96 97 i experienced for the first time and then that was massive then i mean by then we don't even know what was happening because I mean, by then we don't have all this Instagram or whatever it is, you know, it's mm-hmm. not like today no with no photo or record of nothing and nobody's. So it took a while the coral to come back in about 15 years and then 16 again we've been hit by El Nino. And then I just came end of 2016, sort of mid 17 to work in Successor Lavo. And then when mm-hmm. I came, I saw this fish with their peculiar fish, which love actually feed inside the acropora field acropora is the, this shallow beautiful branchy coral branchy coral. coral that grows they love inside there. it's a beautiful collect common name is long nose file fish mm-hmm. and they they lives in mostly in pairs and they have wonderful looking little fish and then it's been i noticed that i don't see that anymore mm-hmm. that was the case in 96 as well then i miss i thought it completely wiped out and then in this dive i somehow bumped up in to this fish and I absolutely first I thought I was no, I was just my mind was messing up but then second time I saw it again I was trying to show <laughs> point it to you guys then it disappeared or we would have gone yeah we're like yeah it's yeah. a tiny fish yeah. right big work yeah. <laughs> and it, it disappeared into the into the uh, dead is that dead coral stack dead that coral there? stack yeah. that was uh, on 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 uh, mm. so I hope we'll we'll see so that, yeah, that that's coral. a good sign actually that means that corals are coming back that's why these fishes we start seeing sure. <laughs> amazing um i think that's probably enough for now that was fantastic thank you very much you're oh, welcome <laughs> so nicole that was my last dive day i've been diving with you in the manta trust for the best well over a week um and we failed to see any mantas at all which is really disappointing very disappointing. But today, what did we find? Mantas. <laughs> Two of them. <laughs> but what was interesting is we found, not only when we were scuba diving down on the cleaning station, but we saw them uh, feeding on the surface. Yeah, we saw at least one feeding on the surface, potentially more, which is really, really rare to see in Lamu. So very lucky sighting that we had today. That's the first surface feeding you've ever seen in Lamu. Yeah, I've been here for a few months now and I haven't actually swam with a surface feeding manta in Lamu until today. So very exciting. Yeah. How long have you been here now? Um, in total, about four months. Okay, so it's, it's a landmark day. Everyone's very happy. <laughs> uh, I can fly home safely, happily garnered with my manta certification mm-hmm. uh, i'm wearing my manta trust t-shirt yes. in pride <laughs> so thank you very much for being our guide over these last few days thank you glad you enjoyed it glad we got to see some mantas <laughs> thanks for coming and that's that that's how i spend my holidays it's just me a microphone and a whole host of marine biologists so I'd like to say a huge thank you to Megan and everyone at Six Senses for making me feel so very welcome. Uh, to Maisha, to Nicole, to Joe, Pip, Viv, Shahar and Hassan and everyone wonderful that I met on the trip. If you want to know more about the Manta Trust or the Oliveridi Project or the Blue Marine Foundation or anything else you heard on this podcast, please go along to treesacrowd.fm and you can read my blog there. But I will leave you with Joe Goodfellow from the Olive Ridley Project, who you heard earlier, with a little bit of good news, which I found on my voicemail answer machine a few days after I got back to England. Oh, 
So I'm delighted to let you know that since recording, the larger of the two Olive Ridley turtles we rescued, the adult female, who we affectionately named Big Mummy, has been released back into the wild. Thankfully, her flipper was dislocated rather than broken, and so she made a very speedy recovery. And the smaller juvenile, who we named Muduvina, which is Devehi for seagrass, as he or she was found during our Protect Maldives seagrass campaign, is due to be released in the next few days. His or her skin infection has cleared up nicely and so should make a full recovery.